Well, good morning, Grace. Great to see you guys. Uh, stick your hand in the air if you were involved in any way, shape, or form putting on Adventure Week. That's a great sight to see. God bless you. I know you're tired, probably a lot of you fatigued. I hope it is the good kind of tired, the kind of tired you feel when what you've invested yourself in is entirely worthwhile, even as it drains you. So we give praise to God for that. Uh, maybe some of you, <clears throat> excuse me, are visiting with us this morning and uh, you're here for the first time after Adventure Week. Maybe your kids came last week and you're new. We want to welcome you to Grace, especially if that is the case. If that's true uh, and you need a Bible to, uh, to, to turn with us to Genesis chapter 32 for our sermon this morning, just stick your hand in the air. Our ushers would be happy to give you one uh, as our gift to you. We are preaching through the book of Genesis, and lately we have been following the story of Jacob's life. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 32 this morning. If you're, again, if this is new to you, Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and uh, we'll pick it up there in chapter 32. Now, while you're turning there, uh, here's an interesting question for you, okay? It's, uh, it's going to tie into what we're doing today, but um, probably not a question you're used to hearing from the pulpit on Sunday morning. How many of you have participated in or had an interest, maybe an obsession, uh, with the sport or spectacle of wrestling. Any of you? <laughs> Wrestlers in high school? Okay, I see a few hands. I don't see a whole lot of hands. I see a few hands. Um, to be sure, it's more sport in high school, college, Olympic wrestling. It's much more spectacle in professional wrestling. But I myself had an interest and uh, maybe even a little bit of an obsession with both. In high school, I wrestled for all four years, and um, I loved it. I did some stupid things, like tried to cut 30 pounds, in one year to make a weight class. It, don't, you should, if you're a wrestler, just wrestle what you weigh. Don't do that. That's not good for you. <clears throat> um, had some matches that were memorable, some matches that were forgettable, but even before that, uh, my friends and I in, in, in junior high school, we kind of got obsessed with the spectacle of professional wrestling uh, to the point that in the summer before my seventh grade year, my friends and I would get together, we'd bike over to a buddy's house on just about a weekly basis, and we would have our own version of a Royal Rumble in my friend's front yard. It is amazing that nobody got hurt. I mean, we just, you know, atomic elbows and camel clutches and, and stupid things that we did to one another. It was a lot of fun, and, and, and thankfully nobody got hurt. But here's the point. The point this morning is not to reminisce about my old wrestling obsessions. It's to point out that we're going to see a wrestling match in Scripture today, and it's one that is unlike any you have ever seen. Not only is Jacob's opponent in this wrestling match extremely uncommon, and I'm talking more uncommon than Junkyard Dog and Macho Man Randy Savage. This is weird, okay? Weirder still. Here's what you will never see at the end of a wrestling match. It doesn't matter what kind it is. You will never see the referee grab the loser's hand hoist it in the air, and declare the loser the victor. But you see it today. So that's where we're going to be. We want to start off kind of giving you the main point right off the bat here. There's a wrestling match that takes place, but the point of the wrestling match is to strip Jacob of all of his remaining self-sufficiency, of his self-reliance, so that he will be the kind of person who is humbled and left to hope in God alone and that's necessary before he can come back into the land of promise and the land of covenant blessing. And there's a principle that's going to be on display in this passage that pertains to all of God's people. It pertains to you. It pertains to me. So let's pray and ask God to meet us in his word as we observe this bizarre wrestling match. God, we come to you this morning confessing our need, even in this preaching moment, this need of you. 
We lack the wisdom, we lack the strength, we lack the insight to accomplish the transformation that needs to take place in our hearts, the surgery that needs to take place in our hearts as we encounter you in your word this morning. So we pray that you would do what we cannot. Take these uh, handful of loaves and fish and multiply them beyond what we could ask or imagine. We pray that you would meet us in in the word. We pray that you would provide uh, humility and dependent faith on you where that would be necessary in here for the first time or perhaps, perhaps in a refreshed way. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I'm looking around. Do we have any kids in here who attended Adventure Week? I know a lot of them are probably in Sunday school at the 9.30 hour, so maybe I'll catch them at 11 o'clock. I've got an assignment, but if you want to know what it is, I'm, I'm 0 for 2 now. I tried it at 8, nobody. Tried it at 9.30, you got to come back for 11 if you want the assignment. It's kind of cool. Uh, Cliff Cramp, where are you? Are you in here? I thought I saw you. You'd be really good at this. Uh, ask me about it after the service. Okay. <clears throat> Genesis 32. Let's pick it up in verse 1. <clears throat> Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him. And when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Okay. So we're setting the stage here, right? We're building to the climax to this royal rumble. And one, verses 1 and 2 help us kind of orient ourselves to the big picture. Here's where we've been. Here's where we're going. At the end of last week's sermon, we found that Jacob has finally departed from Laban, right? They've had years of toil against one, other, one another, one-upsmanship, and it's finally ended. Laban has gone back home. And now Jacob is on the cusp of re-entering the promised land 20 years after he fled. Remember, he deceived his father Isaac. He defrauded Esau of the blessing of the firstborn. And Esau's anger, he had pledged to kill him. And so Jacob had to go into hiding and to flee. And as he's making his return, the angels meet him on the cusp of the promised land. Now, angels are important, right, in, in, in God's stories. They're an indication that God is here to meet with Jacob, much like he did with his angels in chapter 28. In chapter 28, which Kenny preached a few weeks ago, uh, the story of Jacob's ladder. Jacob met the angels of God and received a promise of God as he was departing the promised land to go and to be with Laban for these 20 years. Well, now he's returning, and God is preparing to fulfill his promise. But surgery has to come first. In verses 3 to 5, just a quick summary here, Jacob is sending messengers ahead of him to Esau, sending them with a pledge of gifts to see whether or not 20 years might have dulled Esau's anger a little bit, to see whether or not Esau might be placated uh, by the gifts that Jacob intends to give to him. And we find in verse 6 that the answer to that question appears to be no. A report comes back to Jacob saying that Esau is coming to meet you, and with him there are 400 men. That's not a welcoming party. That's a small army. It appears that Esau will not be placated. It appears that his anger hasn't dulled. So what happens? Verse 9, Jacob begins to, uh, or excuse me, just before verse 9, he gets strategic. He divides his camp into two parts. 
so that if Esau attacks the one, the other may flee. And then he begins to pray to God in verse 9. Here we read Jacob saying, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred, that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I have crossed this Jordan, and now I have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. So Jacob confesses his fear of Esau. He confesses his unworthiness before the Lord, and he prays God's promise back to him. Surgery is beginning to get underway. Then in the next portion, verses 13 to 21, we find that Jacob is uh, strategizing again. So down in verse 16, we see part of the strategy. He asks his servants to, this gift that he's going to send to Esau, he, he asks them to stage it for maximum impact, right? So, so one drove, one wave uh, goes to Esau, and then a little bit of time and another one goes to Esau, and a little bit of time another one goes to Esau. When I was, when I was reading this, I was thinking about um, the way that uh, Five Guys stages their french fries. Have any of you ever eaten at Five Guys, burgers and fries? Pretty good burger. Okay, now here's what, if, if you've been there, here's what they do with their french fries. It does not matter what size order of fries you order. They always pack way more in than that container can possibly hold. They put the container in a bag, and the fries are spilling out all over the place. Now, that's intentional. They intend to give you that many fries, right? It's not an accident. But they want you to think that you're getting more than you paid for. So there's an intentional spillover, spillover effect. There's a staging effect that's taking place. And so, and so uh, Jacob is trying to, to still placate his brother in some way, maybe, maybe by not just giving him a gift, but staging it. And it is a kingly gift. He's staging it for maximum impact. We see that he's still trying to placate down in verse uh, 20. Partway through, for he thought, that's Jacob thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me. And afterward, I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So he's still planning this this staging and this attempt to placate. Now, that's all set up for what comes next, this wrestling match that comes next. And the wrestling match seems odd, right? If the point is to get back to the land, to be with his father, and to have this meeting with Esau, this seems like a strange interruption, except the one that Jacob really needs to meet with isn't Esau, but God. So we pick it up in verse 22. Here's where it gets really interesting. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Okay, we'll pause there for a second. There are two really important things that come out of this part of our passage. Number one, Jacob is left all alone. From God's point of view, this is purposeful. This is intentional. This is not accidental. He sends his family across the river, and at the point he's left all alone, that's when the attack takes place. Why? Absolutely nothing can deliver Jacob. Not his property, not his wealth, not his servants, not his family. He is left alone. He is vulnerable 
He is exposed and he is attacked. And when he is attacked, it just says, a man wrestled with him till the breaking of the day. Now, the passage doesn't say this directly, but I can only imagine that when Jacob is, is grasped in the dark of the night by someone who's putting him in some kind of lock or hold, probably his first thought was, is this Esau? I know he's coming with 400 men. I know he's got a score to settle. I know he pledged to kill me. Is this him taking his revenge by night in one-to-one, hand-to-hand combat? Who else could it be? We get some more clues as we continue reading. Verse 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. That's really interesting. We get some clues as to the identity of this man, but there's a little bit of incongruity, right? There are some, some clues here that, that, that drive up our confidence in who this person probably is. And then there's one that's like, uh, that doesn't fit. First, in verse 25, we're told the man saw that he did not prevail. Then, we're told that he dislocated Jacob's hip with a touch. They've been wrestling all night long, and touch, hip dislocated. Then we're told in verse 26 that the guy says, let me go, for the day has broken. I want to consider these clues with you in reverse order and and try to get our bearings on who this is and what he's up to. First, the one about the oncoming daylight. What's the point here? The point is that Jacob cannot safely see this person in the full light of day. Okay, that's an important hint. That inclines us to uh, suspect this might be a particular person. Secondly, the dislocated hip. Wrestling all night, touch, bam, it's over. What does that communicate to Jacob? This wasn't even close. He's been holding back, okay? Again, we're inclined to have a little bit more clarity about who this is, but then the comment, the man saw that he didn't prevail against Jacob, that one doesn't seem to fit with the others. What's going on here? As we begin to get a sense of who this might be, the question that comes to mind probably for most of us is, if this is who I think it is, Why isn't this match over before it starts, right? Why does Jacob make it not only to the morning, but past a moment? I talked with a number of people over the past couple of weeks about this passage, family, friends. They were really fun conversations. You know what the first thing everybody observed about this passage? It was that question. Why isn't it over like that? Which means we're probably paying attention to the right things. In other words, it's the right question to ask. I want you to hang on to it here for just a second. Continuing, partway through verse 26. Again, we read that uh, Jacob says, let me go, or excuse me, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, that's the man said to Jacob, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. 
Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face. And yet my life has been delivered. Now, that's more than just a little bit bizarre, right? Not only is Jacob now convinced that the person he's been wrestling is God, and not only has God been holding back, but in the end, after the hip dislocation, and after every ordinary observer would say, Jacob, you lost that guy one, God reaches down and grabs Jacob's wrist, as it were, lifts it into the air, and declares him the victor. What? Never seen a wrestling match like this. How does he win? Clearly, the point of this story is that Jacob does not win this victory in his own strength, right? That much is obvious. In God's wisdom and his kindness, God has condescended to grapple with Jacob in a way that Jacob can endure. So the match isn't over in an instant. In fact, we've seen it goes on all night long. Now, why is that? I think this is really important. God knows that Jacob needs to experience being brought to the end of himself. So a whole world of difference isn't there between telling someone, hey, you need to be brought to the end of yourself and experiencing that you are at the end of your resources. Those are two different things, aren't they? And so God in his kindness knows that Jacob needs to experience that to the point where he wrestles all night, he wrestles with all his might, and the best he can do is achieve a draw. Bam, hip dislocated. Oh, I was never even close. I am not who I thought I was. And my resources are not enough. So specifically, Jacob doesn't win this match by looking inward and relying on himself. Uh, Later in the Bible, The prophet Hosea comments on this uh, encounter in Hosea chapter 12. He says something really interesting. Uh, Here's his comment. He, he, He reflects back on Jacob's life. He says, in the womb, Jacob took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel, he's talking about the angel of the Lord, and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. Did you catch what? what Hosea is communicating to us? When the match is over, when Jacob is clinging to this man's leg in a crumpled, weeping heap, he is doing so through tears as a defeated combatant who can do nothing else but beg for God's blessing. And that's kind of the point, isn't it? That's the point at which God moves in to perform surgery which results in Jacob's victory through his defeat. Now, you're going to want to pay careful attention to what God does here. This is powerful. The great physician is at work. He is removing the last vestiges of Jacob's cancer. Jacob is in this crumpled heap, right? Probably clinging to God's leg, crying, begging for blessing. God's about to grant it, but he does one thing first. 
he says, Jacob, or not Jacob, he says, he says, what's your name? Kind of curious thing to ask after you've just dislocated a guy's hip and he's clutching to you in tears. Why does he do that? God is not asking Jacob's name because he doesn't know <coughs> Jacob's name. God precisely knows Jacob's name. The point is not that God needs to be told, but that Jacob needs to confess who he is. Keep in mind that in the ancient world, names were of great significance in disclosing a person's character, right? It wasn't just something that you called someone. It was a description or a disclosing of that person's character. Do you remember what the name Jacob means? Cheater. Back in chapter 25, he's born clutching at Esau's heel. And he's named Jacob, which means heel grabber or cheater. Uh, that foreshadows his life of toil and cunning and cheating with Esau and Laban. Remember chapter 27? After Jacob has deceived Isaac and stolen Esau's blessing, the blessing that Isaac intended to give to Esau, Remember what Esau says back in chapter 27? He goes, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. And just before that, in chapter 27, when he goes into Esau's tent, remember Esau, or excuse me, not Esau's tent, Isaac's tent. I remember Isaac's eyesight is infirm. He can't see. Uh, he's coming in to get the blessing. Um, He's not sure who this is. The voice sounds like Jacob, but they've put the skins on his flesh, and so uh, he smells and feels like Esau, and, and, and Isaac says, he asks him, who are you? Two times, he cheats, says, I'm Esau. He even blasphemously invokes the name of God in support of this deception. So in God's mercy, at Jacob's point of brokenness, God says to him, who are you? It's a familiar question. It is an opportunity for confession because Jacob cannot get God's blessing in the way that he got Isaac's. No pretense will work here. He cannot manipulate it. He cannot scheme for it. He cannot take it by force. So verse 27 of our chapter, chapter 32, God asks the question, all Jacob says, Jacob, there's nothing left for him to say, but he's not just giving his name, he's confessing his character, isn't he? To the question, who are you? He says, I'm cheater. I'm deceiver. I'm heel grabber. That's who I am. And it's not enough. Please bless me. <laughs> just like that, the tumor's out. Surgery has been performed. <clears throat> See, the point of this whole episode is not to break Jacob's hip. The point is to break all remaining vestiges of his self-reliant pride. God wounds Jacob for his own benefit so he can exchange a moral deformity for a physical one that will mark Jacob for the rest of his life. And guess what? Jacob loves him for this. Jacob loved God for giving him what he needed most. And that's the point at which God changes his name, verses 28 and 29. The name change, again, is so significant. It's not just, hey, we're going to call you something else now. 
it's a changed identity, right? It's a representation of a changed identity. God pronounces Jacob the victor and he extends him his blessing, which as it turns out is the only one that matters. You're no longer cheater, he says, but Israel, one who has contended with God with humble, dependent trust. That's how you won. The one who came out of the womb clutching at Esau's heel now clutches at the mercy of God. He's a new creation and he is ready to re-enter the promised land. Jacob is victorious because he's been defeated. Now what we must not miss here is that in changing Jacob like this, God must also lose so as to win, okay? This man, this angel of the Lord who we come to see right, as God in this encounter with Jacob, he has to restrain the full expression of his glory and might even to allow Jacob a clutch on him. He's got to grant to Jacob what Jacob could never otherwise take by force. And so in this wrestling match of restraint and loss, God wins Jacob's lasting and limping trust. That's a remarkable foreshadow of the cross, isn't it? Now, the story of Jacob's life isn't over, right? God's not done with him yet. He's got more lows to come. We will see some of those in the coming weeks. But he's ready to re-enter the land. He's ready to enter or to meet Esau. And the point of sanctification being something that takes place over the course of a lifetime is that the God who can free Jacob from himself is the one who can get him all the way home. <clears throat> we want to spend uh, uh, the rest of our time considering how this passage is fulfilled in Jesus and how it might apply to us, but I want us not to miss the detail in verse 31 and 32 before we do. Verse 31, the sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. So Jacob is permanently marked. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. In other words, this incident is not just definitive for the person of Israel, Jacob, but for the nation of Israel. It shapes their eating customs from this point forward in a way that reminds them of their weak Weakness in themselves and dependence on the Lord. That's an important point. We'll come back to that in a minute. But it's also, by extension, meant to be definitive of us as well. And this is where we begin to see the fulfillment of a passage like this in the person of Christ. So this principle, right? Slaying self-sufficiency to hope in God alone, that's the thing that makes God's presence a blessing and not a curse to a person, right? That principle is true of Jacob, but it's true for all of God's people. Moses, the one who's telling this story to the uh, wilderness generation, he's trying to make the same point to them before they enter the promised land. Here's the kind of person you have to be before God's blessing is a, is, or excuse me, before God's presence is a blessing and not a curse to you. You have to be changed by God into one who relies entirely on God. But it's not just true of the wilderness generation. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. You remember Adam and Eve, they sin, uh, they're exiled from the garden. Right at the end of Genesis chapter 3, what does God do? He posts one of the cherubim, this angelic sentry with a flashing sword, at the gate of the garden, barring Adam and Eve's way of return. What's the point? 
they can't come back the way they are. Same is true for us who would enter the kingdom of God. You can come in, but not as you are. You must be changed by God into one who relies on God's provision before his presence is a blessing and not a curse to you. So what had to happen? In the fullness of time, Jesus Christ had to climactically lose so that we could win. He humbles himself to the point of death on a cross so that our faith could find a handhold on him. Had he not done that, had he not granted our faith a handhold on his obedient life and his sacrificial death, we'd be grasping at air. There would be nothing to cling to and we could not win. But the hope of the gospel is that Christ, in his sacrificial defeat, he won access for all who believe into the very presence of God. Like Jacob, we can have the thing we need the most. God himself. That's what we get when we turn from self-reliance and turn to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, but sometimes that's hard to do. It was hard for Jacob, right? He's got a permanent lip, a a limp, a dislocated hip. Sometimes this kind of abandonment of self-sufficiency and self-reliance clearly occurs when a person's at the end of his or her rope. So what would it look like for us to turn from our own failed attempts to be self-sufficient and to rest on Christ alone. Maybe we're in some of those moments. I want to try to try to direct my observations and applications to three different kinds of people or groups of people who might be here with us today, okay? Group one, you have been there. You have met Jesus. In meeting him, he may have caused you to limp. Some limps are internal, They can't be seen. Others are external. They can be seen. He may have performed this kind of surgery on you. It's not no use to pretend that the the following of Christ that involves the limping in in our own spirit isn't sometimes really, really hard, right? Sometimes that's hard to do. But if you've met Jesus like that, even if you limp, you have a humble confidence that he lost so you could win. So you have a kind of hope that your own strength could never produce. If that's you, if you're in that group, you're in really good company. This is not an uncommon theme. This is what happens to people who are changed by God. It was true of Jacob, it was true of Moses, it was true of David. They had to be remarkably humbled, right? Self-sufficiency slain. Remember Paul, 2 Corinthians 12? God gives him a thorn in the flesh. We're not sure what it was. He pleads on three separate occasions that God would take this thorn in the flesh from him. What does God say? I'm not going to do it. Because my strength is perfected in your weakness. Or how about Peter? Remember Peter? Jesus says, uh, they're going to strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You're all going to abandon me. Remember Peter, boastful Peter? Oh, no, maybe everybody else, but not me. I got this. I'll be there. Remember uh, Martin Luther's hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God? It's got the line in there. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. What does Jesus say to Peter? He says, Peter, you don't got this. But when this is all said and done, I want you to meet me on the other side because I've got you. 
That's true of a lot of people at Grace. I know many of your stories. You guys could give amazing testimonies of ways that God has given you a profound limp and you're grateful for what it's produced in the way you have a handhold on Christ. You should testify, right? Maybe in your grace groups, when you have the occasion, tell some of these stories. I have heard some of you say, I would not rewrite my story. I would not eliminate my limp if it meant that I didn't know the love of Christ in the way that I do now. That is profoundly biblical and profoundly beautiful. But this group, like Jacob, struggles at times, right? Just because you have begun to walk with Christ, just because you have begun to cling to him, doesn't mean you're never tempted to falter or to doubt or to waver. So the, so the encouragement to this group this morning is very simply keep clinging. You have clung to Christ. Keep clinging. Stir up your hope by way of reminder. Meditate again and again on how he lost so you could win. Think on the, uh, the passage in Matthew chapter 27 where Jesus is spiked to the cross and they're mocking him and saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. They do not realize the truth of which they speak. If he would save you, he cannot save himself. So he didn't. There is so much fuel for persevering faith in that meditation. I'd encourage you to spend some time there. And that's group one. Who's group two? Group two, if you're in this group, maybe you're in the thick of the wrestling match with God right now. You haven't yielded your self-reliance. You haven't yielded what gives you a sense of security. But you're being stripped of it, and it hurts. You wonder if he's good. You wonder if he can be trusted. You wonder if he's friend. Is he foe? Maybe your kingdom, your self-constructed kingdom, feels like it's crumbling all around you. You're not who you thought you were. Your plans for yourself and your kingdom are not materializing in the way that you convinced yourself they ought to. Maybe it feels like it's asking too much to let go of what's always given you a sense of security. If that's you, what should you do? I would encourage you as well to go to the cross where Jesus lost to give you himself and hear him asking you, child, what's your name? Who are you outside of me? As hard as it may be, the best thing you can do is tell him who you are outside of Christ. Not for his sake, he already knows, for your sake, that's how the cancer gets out. Confess it. Tell him who you are. I am liar. I am cheater. I am deceiver. Tell him I'm a self-medicator. I'm an image manager. I am a false intimacy junkie. I'm self-righteous. A manipulator. I'm a frantically insecure people pleaser. Tell him if you're a lover of money. Tell him I'm an idolater. I'm a sinner. And it's not enough. Please bless me. If you have that kind of encounter with Jesus, it may make you limp. You will absolutely 
have to die to yourself. But if you do, you will rise with a new name, you will rise with a new identity, and a far greater love. That's group two. What about three? Last group. Maybe you don't really know much about Jesus at all. Maybe you're coming for the first time after Adventure Week. Maybe this is all new to you. Uh, Maybe you have grown up in the church. Maybe you have grown up as a, a child of believing parents, and you know an awful lot about him. But the encounter has never been personal. The faith has never been made your own. You can pray and ask for him to meet you like that. You can do that today. Now, the one thing you have to know about that is it absolutely has to transpire between you and Christ alone. Nobody else can put your self-reliance down for you. As much as your parents might want that for you, as much as your friends might want that for you, as much as your pastors want that for you, they cannot do it for you, okay? That has to happen alone. And I realize that asking to meet Jesus in a way that makes you humble and dependent on him seems like a scary thing. It feels like losing control. Maybe you remember when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, one of the things he taught them to pray was, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I'd suggest that's about as radical a prayer as anybody can ever pray, right? In praying for his kingdom to come and his will to be done, that's a prayer for my kingdom to be shrunken. It's a scary thing to pray. But here's the wisdom in that prayer. Your self-designed kingdom and my self-designed kingdom, they're not enough. They do not last His does. His is the only kingdom that will never expire. And Jesus wants you to know, if you're in this group, that when everything else disappoints you, he is faithful. And he is better than whatever else you've been getting your sense of sufficiency and identity from. If you've never done that before, you can do that today. I'll point you in the direction of some people who can help you with that in just a moment. But for any of us, whether you've never met Jesus or whether you've been walking with him for a long time, and still struggle as we all do with being tempted on occasion to fall back into old patterns of self-reliance, the questions for us this morning are, who are you outside of Christ? And conversely, who are you inside of Christ? Jesus offers us a strange victory, doesn't he? It's strange and wonderful. Cling to him. I would encourage you to cling to him even in coming back tonight to celebrate the Lord's Supper. We saw that the nation of Israel had their eating customs modified in light of Jacob's loss through victory. So do you, right? I don't know if you've ever paid attention to whether or not you eat the sinew on the hip socket, but you do take the Lord's Supper. If you've been walking with Christ, you take the Lord's Supper. You have an eating custom that reminds you of your weakness and his strength. So come back tonight and celebrate. I'm going to pray. Kenny's going to come up and lead us in a closing song. As he does, we have members of a prayer team that are going to be scattered around the room. No matter which of those three groups you might be in, no matter what burden you feel like you're carrying this morning, they would love to meet with you. So as we sing, you can find one of them, pray with them. They'll encourage you. They'd love to, they'd love to introduce you to Jesus if that's never happened. Let's commit this time to him. Father, we give you praise and glory 
for the rescue that you have designed, the strange victory you have designed for us in Jesus. And Lord, we see in Jacob's life what your call is on us. It's to lay down our arms, to lay down our reliance on our wits, our self-sufficiency, whatever it is, Lord, we tend to cling to that isn't you, to lay it down and to find our sufficiency, to find our rest in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that he lost so that we could win. Jesus, we give you glory for going to the cross, for being faithful to your Father's will at every point along the way so that we could find a handhold on you. And we pray that our faith, that our dependence and our humility would bring you much glory. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.